The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. And it is an honor for me to come and to be with you today, and I trust that our time together will be a reflection of the sweetness of the Lord and the kindnesses of the Lord to us, and we pray for you. We're so honored, too, that... uh, we were able to take on two alumni for the first time on our board at uh, Central Seminary, one of those being Pastor Stacy, and uh, he accepted, and uh, we're so glad to have uh, his energy and his enthusiasm and his vision. So I'm very thrilled to be able to be with you all today and to be able to just say God is good, the kindnesses of the Lord are so uh, genuine to you, to us. And uh, so I'd like to turn your attention, I have a few minutes to turn your attention to a topic that I hope will be an encouragement to you and a topic that for 17 years I would not touch when I was in the pulpit preaching. And that may seem uh, a little bit of an anomaly to you, but for 17 years I was afraid of the book of Hebrews. I felt like the book of Hebrews was an overwhelming book and so uh, 17 years into the ministry I for the first time preached on the book of Hebrews. And now going through uh, these last, I don't know, 13 years, um, the Lord has been very gracious in bringing me back to this specific book. And here's my concern, brothers and sisters, here's my concern. The evangelical church is a confessing church. It confesses intellectually to the person of Jesus Christ. But the, what is missing in our churches is not an an intellectual assent to the person of Jesus, but what is missing is a heartfelt, genuine, dominated, Christ-dominated church, local assembly, that sees Jesus for all of his greatness and all of his goodness and all of his glory and for who he is. I remember in in, uh, 2009, my son and I took a course under Dr. Guthrie. There's a Greek exegesis course on the book of Hebrews. And I'll never forget how he opened up this class. He opened up this class by making this remark. If people are struggling to persevere in the faith, if churches are finding difficulty in really following the trajectory of the scriptures, what do you do? He said, let me answer it for you. You answer it this way. To help people and churches persevere in the faith, you help them answer this question. Who is Jesus? You answer the question, who is Jesus? And you answer it not just intellectually, but from a heartfelt desire to really grasp what you believe. You will see people persevere in the faith. You will see churches going forward. And so that's what I want us to do. I want us to have a Bible study this morning. And there's 13 chapters, and there's no way we can read 13 chapters and go through it because Stacy said, I have to be done at a certain time. That's very hard for me, but I'm going to do it, okay? But I want us to grasp the book of Hebrews in all of its significance. So let's just at least read a couple of verses in the beginning and a couple of verses at the end, and let's talk about it, okay? So turn to to Hebrews chapter 1, and look at the first three verses, and then we'll turn over to chapter 13, and look at verse 20 and 21. Verse 1 says, God, after he spoke, I'm reading from NASB, 
God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of everything, and through whom also he made the eons. And he is the radiance of God's glory. And he is the exact representation of his very nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. And he has made purification for our sins. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Who is Jesus? Chapter 13, the very end, the book of Hebrews, if you will. In chapter 13, you have this incredible conclusion that I trust would, just as a fitting conclusion for us as we read through this book. Verse 20, 21. Now, the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, may he equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Let me stop right there before I read the last phrase. You see, to know who Jesus is, is going to do something in your life. So he begins with these seven constructive phrases up front, one right after another. This is who Jesus is, and he concludes in chapter 13 by saying, if you know this Jesus, notice verse 21, you will do all, of you, all that you can to be pleasing in his sight, working out his will. You see, how is it that people will persevere? How is it that people will move forward in their Christian life? It is being dominated by the person of Jesus Christ. And when we are dominated by the person of Jesus Christ, not just an intellectual creed to say, okay, I believe in that. I'm okay with that. Yeah, I guess I do believe that. It is not having your mind wrapping around phrases and says, yeah, I subscribe to this, I subscribe to that, and I subscribe to this. It is people who genuinely have a relationship with Jesus Christ and are moved in their daily life so that his will is our will. I mean, we really could pray the Lord's Prayer. As your will is being done in heaven, may it be done on earth. Through me is the implication. So when I look at Hebrews, let me run real quickly with you through the argument of Hebrews because basically what is happening is there are Jewish believers who have, who have embraced Christianity, who love Jesus, and now they're starting to have second thoughts about their walk with Christ, about their life and their religious uh, demeanor of life, if you will, because really you look over and there's the temple and every day there's the sacrifices and there's the Levitical system and, and Moses is part of the heritage and, and Christianity is what Jesus says, God is spirit and they that worship him must worship him how? In what? Spirit and in 
Truth. Okay, so, so here's all the, the things, the rituals and the system, and Christianity is over here, and it doesn't have all this, and so now they're looking back and forth. And, and so the book of Hebrews is not a theological treatise. It's not a systematic theology. The book of Hebrews is a letter. It is a letter from an author we don't know who wrote it. We don't know this, all the circumstances that surround it. What we know is this man who wrote the book of Hebrews was consumed with the people to whom he is writing that they be dominated by Jesus Christ. So then the very end in chapter 13, they're doing his will. They want to please God. So when I look at Hebrews, what does he do? He, he takes four fundamentals of the Judaistic faith and he says, okay, I'm going to show you four things, and Jesus is greater than all four of these. Notice how he does it. Look at verse number four. What is Jesus greater than in verse four? Tell me when you look at the verse. You can be interactive with me. Greater than what? What is Jesus greater in verse four? Very good. Then angels. You say, and angels, that doesn't even compute with me today. Well, let me just give you a little bit of historical background about angels and Jews. A couple of things. When the Jews translated the Old Testament scriptures and they came to a little phrase in Genesis and in Job, B'nai Elohim, sons of God, they translated in their, their text as angeloi theu, angels of God. The sons of God are angels of God. These individuals believed that these angels were created from some fiery substance, like a blazing light. They didn't eat, they didn't drink, they didn't procreate. They were eternal beings. And as they looked at Genesis 1.26, where it says, let us make man in our image, they defined that as the angels are the counselors of God. So God is saying to the angels, let us make man in our image. They believed 200 angels controlled the movement of the stars. One special angel controlled the succession of days and months and years. A mighty angel was in charge of the seas. Other angels superintended the dew, the rain, the snow, the thunder, the lightning. Other angels were wardens of hell, torturers of the condemned. There were recording angels that wrote down every word man spoke. There's the angel of death. There were guardian angels for every nation in the world. There were protecting angels for every Jewish baby that was born into the world. There are so many angels that one rabbi writes, I believe that even every blade of grass has its own angel. This is their thinking so that you can see the divide between the Pharisees who upheld this and a small, radical, rich few called the Sadducees who denied that. So the divide is incredible. But the majority of the Jews subscribe to the angels as being the counselors of God. So now what does he say in verse 4? He says that Jesus has been become so much better than the angels, and he's inherited a more excellent name than they. And he takes a catena of seven Old Testament passages and shows you how Jesus is better than an angel. Verse 5, why, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my what? My son. Think of that. Or, and again, I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. So to which of the angels did the father ever say, son? Verse 6, and again, he brings the firstborn into the world. Speaking of Jesus, the Father brings the firstborn into the world. Now, this may be at the incarnation or maybe the second coming. It doesn't matter what you take. 
The idea is that the Father brings Jesus into the world and he says, let all the angels of God do what, according to this text? Worship him. That would never be true of the angels. When you see in the book of Revelation, they're always deflecting worship to God. Thirdly, verse number 7, and of the angels, he said, who creates his angels, winds, and his ministers a flame of fire, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is what? Forever and ever. Angels are created beings, it says in the text of verse 7. The Son is sitting on a throne. He is forever and ever. You see the contrast. You could go through all of this catena of things. Verse number 10, and he makes it clear about eternality. And you, Lord, in the beginning, you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish. You remain. He's creator. He is sustainer. He is eternal. Everything else temporary. All heavens and earth, they will one day perish. And then lastly, verse 13 and 14, notice the contrast here. To which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not they, the angels, all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? What you have is the son is sitting His work is done. And notice where he is sitting. He is sitting, according to this text in Psalm 110, he is sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. He's sitting at the, and 3, he's sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. The, The angels are all worshiping and serving. The greater is sitting. The lesser is serving. So now the question comes in verse number 4 when he said, he has become. So much better. And this is where those who do not believe that Jesus is eternal, though you have this incredible cantina of Old Testament texts, they will take this idea and say, aha, see, Jesus is not eternal. He became this. He wasn't always that. That's the whole purpose of chapter 2. The whole purpose of chapter 2 is to tell us why Jesus became something. Notice, if you will, verse, let's skip for time's sake all the way to verse number 9. And we see him, that's Jesus, who was made, and this is the way that it ought to read, for a little while lower than the angels. He became for a little while lower than the angels. Why? One, for the suffering of death. So he might be crowned with glory and honor. So that by the grace of God, what might he do, according to the text? Taste what? Death for every man. You stop and think about this, men and women, the power. I mean, you're just saying about the redemption. Hebrews 10, you have that great statement, a body thou hast prepared me. You stop and think of what is taking place when spirit Jesus becomes flesh Jesus. And he becomes flesh Jesus because God cannot die as spirit God. Death does not mean to cease to exist. Death means to separate the body from the spirit. And if God is spirit, how can there be an experience of death? So he comes and takes a body and experiences death. Philippians 2 said even the death on a cross 
So he experiences separation of the body from the spirit so that he might taste death for every man. Verse number 10. It was fitting for him for whom all things and through whom all things in bringing many sons to glory. Verse 11. So that he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one. It's an incredible statement in the Greek text. Out of one, all of us. Meaning the believers are totally united together because of the death and cross work of Jesus Christ. So for a little while, comma, Jesus is made lower than the angels so that he might taste death for every man, bring many sons to glory, unite all of those sons of glory into a single entity, out of one all. Verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same so that through death he might render powerless him who had power of death. That is the devil. What is, what is taking place here? Jesus makes himself lower than the angelic world for a little while to show his glory and defeat the supreme leader of the angelic evil world. That's how powerful the God-man is. Verse 17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in everything. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make a propitiation, satisfaction for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted and that he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of all of us who are tempted. You see, chapter 2 is totally given over for those who ask the question, what do you mean 1-4? Jesus became. What was he before that? Well, he's always been God. That's how it ends in chapter 13. He is, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday. What's the next word? Today and what's the last word? Forever. I mean, it, th- this is going to seal a Christological aspect in the minds of all believers of who Jesus is. But just to know who Jesus is is not enough. It must move us in our faith. It must dominate us in our thinking. It must move our church in a world that is opposite of the cross and humility and truth and the glorious kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ for which we are all headed. So this is the book of Hebrews. Now I said there were four and so I don't have enough time to do all the others. But I am going to do this. I'm going to at least give you where the passage is so you can look through it. Fundamental number two is verse, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Really, it goes farther than that. But here's what's going to happen with the writer. The writer is going to move from angels by saying this in verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him just like, what's the man's name? Moses. Just 
like Moses was in his house. He compares Jesus with Moses. To us today, that has such little meaning, but to the Jews of the first century, has incredible meaning. If you were to open up your New Testament, I would say to you, what is the number one Old Testament name of an Old Testament character that would be found most in the New Testament? You would probably say what? Abraham. Most people say Abraham. 72 times you find his name in the, the New Testament. But 79 times you find Moses. 10 times in the book of Hebrews you find Abraham. But 11 times in the book of Hebrews you find Moses. See, Abraham was the progenitor of the Jews, but Moses is the deliverer of the Jews. I'll never forget, um, 1979, I was uh, taking a Hebrew course at the Bethel Synagogue in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And... Our, our teacher fought in the Six-Day War, 1967, June 5 to June 10. And he big, strapping, handsome guy. Stood about six foot two, 250 pounds, and just a wonderful, wonderful teacher. And he, what he's doing, he's trying to teach Gentiles Hebrew, okay? So we, he, he was doing it by taking specific names. And so he takes one name that we were dealing with was the name Moshe, which is Moses. And he stopped and he said this to us. He said, you Gentiles will never understand the greatness of this name to us who are Jews. This Jew, Moses, was the greatest Jew who ever lived and walked this earth. You ever feel like kind of raising your hand and saying, excuse me? Um, but I think it's a good illustration for you to grasp, to understand the significance of the word Moses and, and notice, he's compared here, but notice in verse number 3, for he has been counted worthy, Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Moses is subordinated to Jesus. He's compared to Jesus in verse 2, now subordinated to Jesus in verse 3, now contrasted in verse 5 and 6. Moses was faithful in all of his house as a servant. That's a direct quote from Numbers 12, 7. This word servant is the only usage of the word servant in the entire New Testament. It is a word that means a free man who works for a superior by reason of his own will. That is a word taken directly from the Numbers 12 Septuagint translation of this term. Moses was a servant, and through his will... Freely he gave, not being attached as one who was a doulos, but freely he gave to work for a superior. He was the servant of the Lord. That Lord now is described as none other than Jesus here in this text. Verse 6, Christ was not a servant. What does this text say in verse 6? He was a what? He was a son. And he was over the entire house. Moses is a servant in the house, but Jesus is a son over the house. Um, turn to chapter 5. The fourth fundamental that's so important for Jewish theologies. Chapter 5, verse 1. When you look at this text, I mean, actually, those of you who know the book of Hebrews, chapter 5 to chapter 10 is the core argument of Hebrews. And it begins with this statement, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God. A high priest couldn't wake up, or a priest, excuse me, couldn't wake up, or any Jew could not wake up in the morning on a Monday morning, if you will, and walk up and say to Moses, I think God wants me to be the high priest. 
See, that was an appointed place. We have three times in the Old Testament where individuals tried to act in priestly fashion and they were incredibly destroyed by God. Think of Korah. Think of that story where he tried to, will you now seek the priesthood also, Moses said? Think of Saul in 1 Samuel 13 where he is going to offer and Samuel comes later and says, what did you just do? God rips the kingdom from you. Or King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26 where King Uzziah is confronted by Azariah and 80 priests and said, you cannot come in here and offer like a priest. You, this is not for you. And he got so angry and immediately leprosy broke out over him. You see, when you read 5.1 and you have this background in your mind, no priest ever takes the position on his own. Every high priest is appointed in behalf of men. This is such an amazing statement that we see here taking place. Look at verse uh, chapter 7. Skip over to chapter 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, if you could be perfect through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law. What further need was another priest to arise? In other words, if, if, if the high priest in the Old Testament was good enough to accomplish whatever needed to be done for your holiness, I mean, we, needed, we didn't need to go any farther. Uh, verse 14. But it is evident that our Lord descended from the tribe of Judah, a tribe of which Moses never spoke anything about. I mean, all of the priests had to be born under Aaron. They had to be Levites. And out of all of these Levites, a priest is going to be chosen by God to be high priest. But to have a priest come from Judah, the tribe of Judah, why? It's not in the Old Testament. It's not in the law. So he's building his argument. And the argument is an amazing argument. Verse 23, chapter 7. For former priests, on the one hand, existed in great numbers. Why? Because they were prevented by death from continuing. So they, why did he keep having high priest after high priest after high priest after high priest? Because he kept dying. All right? But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's able to say forever. You just go through the text. Brothers and sisters, I, I mean, it is so exciting to go through this text and be challenged by what it, the writer is saying, the greatness of Jesus over angels, the greatness of Jesus over Moses, the greatness of Jesus over the entire Aaronic priesthood, especially the high priest. And, th and if that's true, in other words, if Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, of which Moses spoke nothing, guess what's going to have to be the final fundamental of the faith for Judaism. Turn back to chapter 7, if, if you're there, and look at verse number 12. For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity, there has to be a change of what? Of the law. If the law says, only from Aaron, and you got another high priest coming outside of Aaron, something's going to have to take place. So he spends his time from chapter 7 to chapter 10 talking about the law. It is an incredible statement. Look at verse 19, just the first phrase of verse 19 of chapter 7. For the law made nothing, what? Perfect. Look at chapter 10, quickly. Chapter 10. Verse 1. For the law, 
since this has only a shadow of good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifice which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. It's impossible. The law, men and women, James says, is a mirror. I go to the mirror, I look at the mirror, and the mirror doesn't say to me, yuck, let me help you shave. Let me help you comb your hair. You know, the mirror, it's just reflecting what it sees. See, that's the law. There's nothing wrong with the law. What's the problem? The law reveals the weakness of what? The flesh. So that's the problem. So we need help. <laughs> we need help. Look at verse 11, chapter 10. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Think of yourself in finality. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting until that time onward his, his enemies be made a footstool. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. This is, what, this is the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. So all of this takes place, think of it, all this takes place, these four fundamentals, Jesus is compared, and now go back to how he introduces, go back to Hebrews chapter 1, notice how he introduces this, again, if you don't mind, chapter 1, verse 2, in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, notice, whom he appointed heir of all things, in chapter 2, verse 15, he said, he has not committed the future world to angels. He's committed it to a son. He's thinking of anticipation of the kingdom. The kingdom's all about the son. Secondly, through whom he made the eons. Your, your translations struggle with this. They struggle here. They struggle in chapter 11, verse 3, to how to actually address eons. And so the more you, you'll see some that talk about worlds. That doesn't even make sense. Talk about universe. That's okay. But it's not deep enough because he's talking about more than just the physical apparatus that you see around us. It's also including the epics of time within each historical period of time. He's in control of all of this. Look at the next one. He is the radiance of his glory. He accurately reflects the glory of God. John, Romans 3. We fall short of what? The glory of God. He accurately reflects it. He is the exact representation of his nature. The very stamp of God rests upon him. He upholds all things by the word of his power. I, I brought with me an office uh, depot pen. It's not even worth a dollar. Okay? It writes like it too. But I brought it for a reason. Because the text says he upholds all things by the word of his power. Let me tell you how important. Okay, so we got 100 people in here, 200 people, whatever we have in here. I want to see how strong you are. This pen is not even worth... One dollar. I want to see how strong a hundred people can be with this tiny pen. I'm going to count one, two, three. And when I say three, I want every one of you to say this word, stand. And I'm going to take my hand away from this pen and see if a hundred people can make this big pen that is not worth one dollar stand in my hand. Okay, you ready for it? All right, let me just try it. One, two, three. Stand. Good. Okay, now let's, that's good, solid. But let's really give it now. Okay, ready? One, two, three. He upholds everything by the word of his power. He purified our sins. You think, the whole Levitical system could not purify our sins. He purified our sins. So that I am right. He not only took away my sins, gave me his righteousness. So, the last sitting down at the right hand, I, I say... 
to you men and women that when you look at this book of Hebrews, I've only given you the theological side of it. You come to chapter 11. And when you come to chapter 11, what is it? that's a chapter of what? You can tell me. It's faith, a chapter of faith, is it not? And when you look at faith, you look at the way that God demands people to live. In other words, if you really believe that Jesus is God, if you really believe his word, if you really believe that he is who he said he is, then you are able to live your life on a different plane. In fact, verse 6 tells us, without faith, it's impossible to please him. You cannot please him unless you take him at his word. We live by circumstances. We live by feelings. We live by events of life. And Hebrews is a book that is pulling us out of our culture and out of ourselves and out of our homes and saying, listen, if you're really dominated by God, live like it. It's an issue of faith. By it, the elders obtained a good report. Verse 3, by faith, we understand how the words were framed by the word of God. The worlds, the eons were framed by the word of God. Look at, look at verse number 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Jesus greater riches than everything in Egypt. Verse 12, therefore, or chapter 12, excuse me. Since we have such a cloud of witnesses around us, abandon every encumbrance. You know, people say, well, this isn't sin. Men and women, that's not the issue. Abandon anything that holds you back from going hard after Jesus. And also, don't forget the sins that easily entangle you. Run with perseverance the race that is set before you. Verse 2, fix your eyes on Jesus. You turn to chapter 13, and he ends with this whole staccato-like, I love it. All right, if you want to really see what this is like going hard after Jesus, then you're going to love the brothers, verse 1. You're going to show hospitality, verse 2. You're going to remember the prisoners who, are, for Jesus' sake, are in prison, verse 3. You're going to be pure because marriage bed is undefiled. Marriage is a wonderful thing. You don't have relationships outside of the marriage bed. Verse 5, notice, you will not go hard after money. You go hard after Jesus. In fact, Jesus so satisfies you, he'll never depart from you. He'll never leave you, so you'll be satisfied with Jesus. Verse 7, you're going to imitate the fate of your leaders. 8, 9, and 10, the doctrine of Jesus you'll cling to. On it goes. And then he comes to verse 20. The God of peace, who brought it from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, may he equip you in every good thing so that you might do his will. Working in us. I'm so thankful for that what is pleasing in the sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. A message came to the captain of the ship and these are the words the captain received. Quote, alter your course 10 degrees south. The captain replied, quote, I will not. You alter your course 10 degrees north. Answer, sir, I ask you again, you don't have much time. Alter your course 10 degrees south. Captain, this is the captain speaking. This is a battleship. Alter your course 10 degrees north immediately. Answer, 
Sir, this is a lighthouse. Alter your course by 10 degrees south. That's Hebrews. That's the rock. Your course must be set by the greatness of Jesus. This is not an intellectual game. This is a passion. This is a pursuit. And this is the direction for you, for me. Lord Jesus, thank you for these moments to open up your word, which is a lamp to our feet, a light to our pathway. Lord, we just see this incredible cavity in the evangelical world. We're all about translations in the Bible. We're all about academic degrees. We're all about big churches. But none of that's in the Bible. But what is here, Lord, is is people who really come face to face with Jesus. We have many people sitting in our churches that are intellectual Christians. They're intellectual Christians. But Lord, you didn't die for our brain. You died for the wholeness of who we are. And as we sang just a few moments ago, 10,000 reasons. Lord, I just come to you and I pray that we'll see these reasons to bless you, to glorify you, to go hard after you. We will not be stuck in the quagmire of life and sin and get into the quagmire, well, it's okay to do this or to do that because it's not really sin. When, Lord, we need to really focus our eyes on Christ alone. I need this as a preacher. I need this. I need you to straighten out my thinking and my life and the course and direction. I need you to dominate my heart. I need you to do that here with these people. You are looking for people whose hearts are loyal to you. Lord, I pray that that will help us see that that moves us to do your will. Thank you for the book of Hebrews. Thank you for this rock of truth and the greatness of Jesus. Thank you for this church. Thank you for Pastor Stacy. What a joy. I pray that you'd use him powerfully. I pray that as this church moves out of this place of 11 years, they will move out ready to move, not to sit, but to move. I thank you for how you're working. We love you today, Lord, in Jesus' name.